Well, this is good morning rather than good evening because I'm recording this early in the morning as opposed to the original, which was recorded in the evening on a Zoom call. That recording didn't take and was only partial. So I'm attempting to reconstruct important aspects of that talk for people who have asked if there was a recording. I was reminded on the Zoom call of how precious it is to have us assembled in a circle face to face or assembled in squares and lines face to face or back to back or side to side, but just to be in a space together where we can see, feel, smell, touch, and be together and create an energy field that bodies together, concentrated in mindfulness can create. One of our most prominent Dharma teachers on a conference call this week said that she now understood why Tai says that a virtual Sangha is not a true Sangha. He never said it isn't useful. He never said it was a bad idea. He just said it wasn't a true Sangha. And I think now that we have all experienced virtual Sangha, we understand that it's valuable, it's precious, but it just isn't the same. For me, it's hard to speak to you when I can't feel your energy and be guided by that because you often take me completely away from what I had planned by the energy you put in the room. Recording this without your being present has the same kind of handicap. But sitting alone in meditation, I am feeling you from my internal sangha. When Thai came to the U.S. to try to stop the war, one of the questions that he was asked is how he managed to undertake such uh, an overwhelming and impossible task alone. And he said he was sort of shocked by the question because he was never alone. That he carried an entire Sangha inside of him. And so in these days of separation, it's important that we access our internal Sangha. The energies from that internal Sangha may be even more potent than the Zoom images and conversations that we share. That internal Sangha is not only each of us, it is also Thai, 
It's also the monastic community. It is available inside of us to access. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Buddha energy in me, as well as the historical Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. We've all practiced long enough, heard enough talks, read enough books, that there is a strong Dharma presence within each of us. And of course, I take refuge in the Sangha. You can create an image of the Sangha in your mind an image of the people you sit with at the Mindfulness Center that you sat with on 30 years of retreat. The Sangha of Brown Robes walking not only perhaps in your personal experience, but for 2,600 years, walking to bring us the Dharma. The prison Sangha has a practitioner who has intensively studied Chinese for the past few years. And he some time ago reminded me what I had heard before, that the Chinese character for crisis is made up of the characters for danger and opportunity. We currently live in a time of international crisis. People are sickening and dying. Economies are closing down. People are losing jobs and lives. The danger is very real. But so is the opportunity. by psychologists that shared experiences create bonds. And right now, the entire world is sharing the experience of this crisis. And it can create bonds. That could be capitalized upon moving into the future. I recently saw an article about the current situation written by someone that I 
I'm pretty sure has not been exposed to Thai's teachings using the word interbeing or having a giant local, national, and international lesson in interbeing. And that lesson is being provided by a virus. I don't think when we visualize our teachers, we had ever visualized a virus among them. So what is our job as practitioners in this time of crisis? Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Our job yesterday was to do our practice, to become the best bodhisattva that we can be, and to be as mindful as we can in every moment. Our job today is the same, and our job tomorrow will be the same. So in this way, the more things change, the more they say the same. The answer to life and the suffering in life is this practice. It was designed specifically to address the unavoidable suffering and the optional suffering in a human life, in a human body. We are so fortunate that we have this practice. And so many are joining us in bodhisattva practice. If you read the newspapers or watch the news, you will see a constant stream of medical bodhisattvas serving the greater good, serving the greater good to the point of exhaustion, serving the greater good even when doing so endangers their own health and welfare. We are seeing played out on the world stage what happens when people pursue their own independent individual whims, desires, and motives. And we're seeing what happens when people subjugate, release those egotistical motives in the service of all beings. Many of you are aware that the Lion's Roar and the Thich Nhat Hanh Foundation recently produced a four-day extravaganza of Dharma in tribute to Thich Nhat Hanh. And whether that was a response to the current situation or had long been in the planning, I do not know. But it was a appropriately timed celebration of Thai and his teaching. And on each of the four days, there was a prominent Buddhist speaker 
giving a tribute to Ty. And one of those speakers was Jack Cornfield, who was a very uh, strong influence on many of us. And he spoke about Thich Nhat Hanh coming to Spirit Rock to give a talk and how 4,000 people assembled and there was a stage outside somewhere and the monks and nuns had been on the stage chanting. And then time walks through the crowd and up toward the stage to give his talk. And I'd like to play you just a short excerpt from Jack Cornfield's uh, observation on Thai and mindfulness. Live you can see that Jack Cornfield was giving this talk over a telephone hookup. And it's a bit echoey, so please bear with it. It's worth it. You could see in the background beyond this wooden stage, coming up to this amphitheater where the two or 3,000 people were seated. And he walked so mindfully and slowly and beautifully, elegantly, that the whole 3,000 people took a deep breath and realized, oh, this is what it's like to be present. His presence had a remarkable effect because he was so much embodying the teachings that he also transmitted in his words and his poetry. I met him shortly after he first came to teach at San Francisco Zen Center, maybe almost 40 years ago, and uh, I was part of a retreat as well that he taught down at the Tassajara Monastery. And at that time, the Zen community in many places kind of looked down on mindfulness as a little brother, second-class practice that was somewhat dualistic. If you were really Zen, you were just there, immediate in the moment. And mindfulness was like, oh, sitting around, noticing, observing, talking about, as if it wasn't really deep meditation. And then Thich Nhat Hanh arrived and took a cup of tea and took a step and and describe what it meant to be truly mindful, which is to be absolutely present in the eternity of this moment. Absolutely present in the eternity of this moment. Every now and then there is a phrase that will just grab me. and inspire me and inform me and sometimes embarrass me by reminding me how far my practice always still has to go. So in these two instances 
died just immediately by his presence, bringing 3,000 people, I misremembered it as four, bringing 3,000 people to the moment just with his walking and his presence. And his presence with a cup of tea and speaking transforming the understanding of mindfulness. For people who were well grounded in a version of the practice, but who also still had some ways to go. absolutely present in the eternity of the present moment. I hear many people saying, what should my response to this crisis be? I feel guilty when so many are hurting for sustenance and sick and dying that I'm just kind of comfortably socially distanced in my Montana cocoon. But there's a second disease out there. It's called fear and anxiety. And our practice takes us beyond fear and anxiety, allows us to be with fear and anxiety, and to transform fear and anxiety. And if we can even approximate being fully present in the eternity of the moment, when we walk through a store to buy some necessities, when we are sequestered with our families, if we can be mindfulness, we are addressing the problem. The 14 mindfulness trainings are inspiration for the year and our theme. And as we know, they speak about consumption. So what are we consuming in this time of fear and anxiety? Are we exacerbating and consuming the fear or anxiety by excessive consumption of news, either by online reading or television watching or whatever source. How much is enough? 
You know, one version of our meal gata says learning to eat in moderation. And it's also important that we learn to psychologically eat in moderation as well. So if we want to be mindful and we want to be part of the cure and antidote to the fear and anxiety, we can't be consuming it. The next time you think about consuming more news, ask if you might not be better served with a little sitting or walking meditation or some calm dharma study. In the original version of this talk, I spoke of many other things. But I think for now, I'd just like to talk about one other practice other than our general bodhisattva practice that we do all the time and our meditation that we do all the time. I'd like to talk about including the five remembrances. I'm of the nature to age. There's no way to escape aging. I'm of the nature to experience sickness. There's no way to avoid sickness. I'm of the nature to die. There's no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There's no way to escape being separated from them. I inherit my actions of body, speech, and mind. My actions are my continuation, my only true belongings. Buddhist teachers remind us that there are two kinds of suffering in our lives. The kinds that we create for ourselves by the way we choose to view and interact with life. And the kind of suffering that just comes with having a human life and a human body. And the five remembrances remind us about aging, sickness, death, the sorrow of being separated, and the power and essence of our everyday actions. Sickness, old age, and death and the current crisis of sickness and death apparently, apparently even more dangerous to those who are of advanced age. How do we deal with those things? We can't change them. We can alleviate some of the optional suffering by our own behaviors. But certain things about the human condition simply have to be accepted. They just are. And we can't make them different by 
tricks of speech or even by tricks of belief. So a good practice for this time is the five remembrances and acceptance of life as it is in the very here and now. I'd like to end this talk with a recitation that my wife and I use to end our morning meditations. We do two or three. We do the three refuges, and we do this one always among them. Dwelling fully in the present moment with stability, the past no longer haunts, it just informs. The future no longer frightens, it can inspire. And the present unfolds with increasingly wise and skillful speech and action. Thank you for listening, any of you who choose to listen to this recreation of the talk. And uh, I look forward to when I can see my Sangha in person. And until then, as Thai did when he came to the West, I will take refuge in the Sangha in me.